that's something I'm sitting with a lot of what you named that many of us have been conditioned to grieve behind closed doors. And what that's done is make us feel like we're having this isolated experience of grief when in fact that's false. We're all losing something. I say this all the time. We've all lost something. We're losing something now. And I really want to invite people to turn towards that um, so that we can heal because you know, I mean, there's so much we've, we've denied um, and patterns continue to persist. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. This week, my dear friend Michelle Cassandra Johnson is back to help us tend to the shattered parts of ourselves so that we can embrace our wholeness and do the work of healing the collective heart. In the podcast, she says, What's needed in this moment isn't to get back to normal or to get back to work or to get back to being busy and productive. What's needed is to acknowledge what we've gone through and what has been lost. We must feel in order to heal. Her new book, Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief, is a radical invitation for those of us who feel brokenhearted, helpless, confused, powerless and desperate in this moment to embrace the lost art of grieving as an essential component of healing. This book moved me and made me feel new depths and dimensions of my grief that I honestly didn't know was there. It made me reflect on how I, like many others, have attempted to manage my grief behind closed doors, alone and isolated. But Michelle reminds us that we don't grieve in isolation in the same way that we don't heal in isolation. This podcast is a beautiful and joyful reminder that despite the difficult and uncertain times we are facing, we are resilient together and have the capacity to meet this moment with an open heart that can heal us forward. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for a free download of a collective grief ritual from Michelle's book, Finding Refuge. Enjoy the show. Michelle Cassandra Johnson, welcome to Citizen Podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. I'm so happy. I should say again. I should say again, because this is, I think, our third interview. It is. It is. You're just a regular. We're just going to make you a co-host at this point. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I want to start by saying, and most of our listeners know this, that I know you. Um, you are my friend. You are my collaborator. We've been working together for years now. I've heard I mean, I've heard all of your stories and I was struck by this book that you've written called Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. Um, I was struck by how it, it moved me and it made me feel depths and dimensions of my grief that I, I honestly didn't know was there, which I understand to be grief now, like grief just keeps Mm -hmm. revealing itself. And you talk a lot about that in this book, but you know, it made me reflect on how I, like many others have attempted to manage my grief behind closed doors. Mm 
right. alone and isolated. You know, even the grief of 9-11, which was like this enormously shared event, you know, made me want to retreat in many ways. It was just too overwhelming. Um, and so anyway, so I was, I, I really loved how you exposed that in this book and how um, you're bringing grief to the surface in a way that we all need to confront and feel our way through. Um, and you've told me that your entire heart is in this book. I mean, you tell so many beautiful stories of personal grief about your dad and your friend Eric and Trayvon Martin and many others. And so can you start by speaking to your own personal journey of grief? Yes, it's a big, big question. And I, I'm really um, happy to hear this struck you because we do know each other so well. And the, even, I mean, I've, I've reread it multiple times now and been like, oh, this is the way you're telling the story of your grief or this is how you're relating to it. So dimensions of my own grief they were revealed in the process of writing this book and then in even reading it um, now that it's taken shape and form. So I think my personal journey of grief, well, I learned to be strong and I learned to, um, my mom didn't say get over it, but she would, um, she taught me a lot about endurance and, um, moving through things, but not necessarily addressing the pain associated with whatever I was experiencing. And I think that was because she was suffering and um, raising two kids and on her own and didn't, was like, I, she didn't have any time for to address her grief or her pain or suffering. She had to keep it moving. And I know this is a message I've heard from other Black people and in particular Black women too, like we have to hold so much. And have to keep it moving and keep going. And so there isn't space made for our care or space made for our grief. So I learned that message as a, as a child. Um, and I um, feel like the first time I was really um, struck myself by grief was when I was 14 and my grandfather died. It was my dad's father. Um, his name is Cornelius. That's my dad's name too. And I had actually been in the hospital for about a month and I got out of the hospital and the first place I had to go was my grandfather's funeral. And so I'm like shocked when I come out of the hospital and I go to this funeral and I, I was so, um, I was like in the ritual of the funeral, but, and it was an open casket. And I was also really, um, noticing the pattern of people coming to the funeral of people going to my grandmother's house after and then people leaving like then it was it was done so I learned to be strong and endure and I also learned like people show up for a minute and then and they do the ritual right they do the thing that we are supposed to do like say I'm sorry or bring cake to the house or set up meals for a week and then they're gone and I I think what I what I've learned about grief is that it's ongoing and that really I've needed people to show up a month later, a year later, right? At these times when folks may not actually be thinking that I need support or we need support in our own grief process. And I feel like I've certainly experienced a lot of loss um, and, and we as a collective have and are experiencing a lot of loss. And um, 
you know, I've lost friends and you mentioned Eric. That was a really intense experience, losing a friend who was very close with me, who had been a partner of mine prior to becoming a friend and then transitioning. Um, There's a story about my grandmother um, and I learned a lot about ancestors in her transition. So I feel like the way I've been describing the writing process is as a shamanic journey. And really, if I think about my personal process with grief, grief, that has been a shamanic journey as well, like diving deep into this and and knowing, even as a child, when I was 14 and went to this funeral, that something bigger needs to happen. Like we actually need to talk about how we feel. We don't just need to eat this cake and drink the coffee after the funeral. We need to like talk about this in some way together because we've went gone through an experience together. Um, and that's something I'm sitting with a lot of um, what what you named that many of us have been conditioned to grieve behind closed doors and what that's done is make us feel like we're having this isolated experience of grief when in fact that's false we're all losing something I say this all the time we've all lost something we're losing something now and I really want to invite people to turn towards that um, so that we can heal because you know I mean there's so much we've we've denied um, and patterns continue to persist Uh, So that's some about my personal experience and journey of grief. I really appreciated the way that you wove in so many stories of grief, because I feel like one of the things I've learned from grief is that it's aggregate. And, and what I mean by that is that like, I, I feel like now when I grieve, I'm never just grieving one person. I'm grieving all of the people I lost. It's like they become in, intrinsically tied together. It's like grief in many ways affirms our interdependence. And, and, and grief scares the shit out of me, quite frankly, these days. And I don't know if it's like the older I get or the more I understand about the world. But like when I grieve, it feels endless sometimes. It's like, It's like, I can't just grieve one isolated separate person. It's like, I grieve all of the connections between people, right? I grieve all, you know, all of the, all of the losses at all at once. Mm -hmm. And, um, and sometimes I feel like I'm going to lose myself in, in grief. And I, and I say that both as a thing that, that terrifies me. And I also say it as like one, as a beautiful thing that like grief reminds us, right. That like our losses are, are, are connected and are bound. And so I want to, I'd love to hear from you. Like, how do we hold the, like the, the gravity Mm-hmm. of grief the the bigness of grief the 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 unendingness often of grief especially the grief that we're feeling now right yeah i think you know part of your experience of feeling afraid of grief and also recognizing that our interdependence through the losses we've experienced and the your own process of grieving i feel like a lot of people are afraid that grief will swallow them whole like it will consume them. And I have felt that as well. And still in moments when I am like in, you know, sobbing on my couch, I feel like this is not going to end. Like this is going to take me out, which is how I felt in the, I wrote about in the introduction when George Zimmerman was acquitted, like this is going to, this is it. This is taking me. I don't know what to do with it. And it didn't. I mean, this is what I understand about grief. Like I'm still here. And Um, I've been able to heal some from that. And so I think part of what we want to remember is 
we are resilient and we have the capacity to heal, um, but we don't have to heal in isolation, like just like we don't have to grieve in isolation. And I'm not asking people to grieve everything, like grieve for everything happening in the world. Although from what you described, similar to me, I'm sensitive to what's happening in the world. Like I feel it deeply. So it does mean that when I'm grieving, and I think this is true of trauma too, it's aggregate in the way that you said, it's not just for my friend, Eric, or my grandmother, it's for everything that is happening to the planet and the people on the planet and what we're doing and because of systems of oppression. Um, and I need to have some sort of balance, right? Given that I'm going to grieve for all of those things, I need some things to also bring me joy. So I feel like this finding refuge is about helping people get in touch with their grief and it is about the heart work but it's also about healing and I feel like isn't that what we it's in the spirit offered in the spirit of healing and isn't that what we want to do and so I I would say people it would be helpful for folks to remember that often people describe grief like a wave and it is like that like waves can knock you over but then there's this this period of time before the next wave. Like that is what grief is. And can we sustain the wave and know there's going to be a space where we're like on dry land and then there's another wave that that hits us and then there's space. And can we gather the support we need to move through the waves of grief? Mm. I love you normalizing that actually. Um, and that we can't control like when the wave comes, <laughs> but that we can understand it as a wave. Right. Right. And that nothing like is per like everything. Exactly. I loved what you just said about how I don't want to like universalize this, but so many of us are seeking healing. Right. And, and even what we know about wellness is like so many of us are desperately right. Seeking and searching and trying to buy and co-opt and appropriate any form of healing they can get their hands on. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet we are also desperately avoiding grief, right? And I, it just feels in some ways like a paradox, you know, of like enormous proportions that like we're desperately seeking wellness and healing and we're desperately trying to escape um, what it's going to take, right? Um, and I'm thinking like grief and, you know, like moving through discomfort and, fe and feeling, you know, pain. Um, the pain of loss, the pain of complicity, complaint that, you know, all of the pain. And, uh, and it's just making me think about this moment. And, and you mentioned this when you were talking about how you learned endurance and how we have to keep moving. And I learned that too. Like I learned like, like get it together, you know, get back on track, get back to normal. And like, that reminds me so much of like this particular moment mm -hmm. in this like new you know, I call it like a new pandemic phase because the pandemic hasn't ended, right? It's a new pandemic phase. And yet we're seeing like literally like, you know, a, a, a tidal force of, of people sprinting back to normal, like doing everything they can to race back to normal, to get back to normal, to feel normal again. What do you think this moment demands of us? Um, both in the way in which we like allow for the wave, like maybe this is a wave of like restoring ourselves and recovering, but there's grief that needs to be felt, you know, given what we all just went through and also just given what we've been moving through for 500 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in finding refuge, I at least two times wrote about, and one was in relationship to losing my father 
that I was um, in the grocery store and wanted everyone to know like, hey, y'all, this just happened. Like, can somebody see that I'm suffering, right? And I have these moments where I'm, I want things, you've heard me say this, I want things to stop. And for us to say what just happened and what is needed. And so I feel like while the world's gonna keep turn, turning, a pause would be helpful, like slowing down enough to say, what did we just go through? I think that's what's needed in this moment. And I get the, I want to be back. I don't, I don't want to be back to normal. I don't even know what that is, but I want some certainty. I'll say that. I want to feel grounded. I don't want people to continue to die. I want um, people like my mother to feel safe. You know, like there are all these things I do want, but COVID tore that up. Like COVID was like, nope. And all the other pandemics that were revealed and, and intensified during COVID, they were like, we're just going to tear this open for you all to respond to. And I'm, I fear that we'll bypass this, which is what I get. That's what the human condition wants to do. Like, let's just go back to work, to the office, to doing things. Let's get the kids back to school. I, I hear that. And I feel like we're missing an opportunity to talk about what just happened and how we want to move forward. And I just think the pandemics that were present before COVID will continue. Um, and people are still dying from COVID. I, like every day I think about that and I think, I'm curious, like are other people thinking about that? People are still losing people. That's right. Nurses, doctors, ambulance workers have have like quit because of the trauma they've experienced. So hospitals, they're under-resourced even more maybe at this point. Um, and so I think we need to pause and say, let's talk about what we just went through and what we're going through now and mm -hmm. what we need as a community and a collective. Well, and I'm even thinking about what's coming, right? Like the eviction moratorium is going to be lifted. We're going to have like right. an enormous housing crisis. Um, you know, inequality has actually gone right. up since the pandemic, right? So like we're going to be facing enormous obstacles to our collective well-being and survival because of what happened. Anyway, so I'm just thinking about like, like, like even like the aftermath, right? And what we're going to have to like confront and navigate and grieve that we don't even know yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like anticipatory grief, right? We should expect that we will grieve something though, you know, and, and I'm not saying being in a state of hypervigilance. I am saying prepare for that. Like, let's be, let's normalize a conversation about grief, our individual grief and the collective grief. And we have this, this moment culturally we experienced that lasted for quite a long time. So we have this, this um, material and experience we can respond to. Can you speak more about um, anticipatory grief? Because I, I feel like often this is a part of the equation we don't talk about. Um, and yet we're staring down possible extinction. We're not just staring down like the repercussions of pandemic, right? We're staring and, and systemic oppression and inequality. We're staring down possible extinction. And I, I think that, you know, often when I'm doing climate, um, uh, climate change work, I find that people are literally dissociated in their bodies. Like they can't, they can't feel their way into the, the future that might be coming and the changes that it might demand of us um, and the loss, right, that that's going to occur. I mean, I live in wildfire country. You know this about me. Right. Like we almost just lost our house, right? So like we're having like more frequent reminders that like 
the earth, you know, the world is changing, right? And and they're gonna be and we're gonna be living into a different world. And and I'm just curious, like how how do we build a capacity um, to hold? And I want to also hold like the anticipation of hope too, right? Like right. I don't want to just hold the anticipation of like destruction and disaster. I know that I go there a lot. Um, but I, I think we have to reckon with that, right? That like things are going to change and there's no going back, right? Given climate change and that it's a scary, um, it's a really horrifying forecast, and and there's beautiful things emerging, right? Also in this moment about um, with regards to like you know how we're coming back towards each other and and what we're discovering about mutual aid and collective care and all you know what I mean. So like I also think that um, you know there's possibility right in the future. But I'm just curious, like how do we prepare ourselves? How do we build that muscle? How do we um, create more capacity for holding? The, the possibility of a more beautiful future and also the reality of like a very different future. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll speak to anticipatory grief um, first and connect it to your, your question about the climate as the example of what is changing, we are changing it, it is changing in response to what we're doing. Uh, in, in my experience of moving through anticipatory grief, we're working with people who are anticipating their loved one, let's say, um, transitioning. There's a lot of fear around going there, and there's a benefit to processing. What will it be like? Like, you know that this family member is going to transition. What might it be like? What do you think you might need? Let's be with these emotions. That's really powerful work. And then I think about anticipatory grief um, related to racism and white supremacy. So like all the brown and black folks who have been murdered and waiting for the next one and the hypervigilance that's in my body because of that, like I'm just waiting, right? Um, and it and it's hard to prepare for that even though I know it's gonna happen. I think the, which one of the challenges is, oh, that could be me. I think that is, or that could be my brother or that could be, right? It doesn't have to be someone I know, but there's a different experience, I feel like. Um, and I think with the the planet, it's making me think about hospice. You asked about hope, but, but what I'm thinking about is hospice, like, and palliative care, right? And when, um, and I have a friend whose mother is in hospice and coming home soon to die. Um, I feel like the planet, we, we might need to treat it like it's in hospice, <laughs> And, and what do we do, right? And how do we, how do we, I mean, when I think about people in hospice, it's, it's making them as comfortable as they can be because we know a transition is going to happen. And I don't mean to be in so much despair. I don't think that we're going to like be extinct tomorrow or the planet is going to like stop turning tomorrow. That's not what I mean, but it's a different orientation to think about. It's an acknowledgement that the planet is, is screaming at us and parts of the planet are dying. And species are dying out. Like it's an, that's what I mean when I say hospice. Like these things are happening. So how do we prepare ourselves and respond um, to the collective grief around that and just the planet? How do we care for it? Given that we know, I mean, the science suggests like our time is limited. And so when I think about possibility, I think about well, what do we want to do in that time? Like what do we want to do with it? Um, and I I feel like 
people can think about their own experience. We are dying every day because we are aging every day. So how do we want to use our time? So you can think about it individually and then us as a collective on this planet, because we have time here, how do we want to use our time and regard the planet and the beings on the planet? This is how I think about hope. I don't think I'm going to stop climate destruction. And I'm not sure we can based on the data now. Like I don't, we can do things to mitigate harm, but I'm not sure we can stop the trajectory we're on. Like I just, I don't know that. Um, I, I wish I could say that I did understand that and, and know that, but I don't know that that's true. So how do we want to be? Like, how do we want to use our time here? Mm. I love the analogy of hospice. And, um, and the other thing that hospice reminds me of is intimacy and relationship, yeah. right? Like how, like maybe the medicine isn't like, um, I'm just thinking about like, you know, exploring space, like all of these like <laughs> solutions people have to like the, an uncertain future, um, and, you know, technological advancements, you know, maybe the medicine, which I think hospice care suggests is more intimate. It's more relational. Do you see, do you see that playing a role in like how we get through? Yeah. I love that connection of intimacy because it is when I think about people that have in my life that have been in hospice, it's like being with them as they get ready to transition in this way that I may never, like I haven't been with them in that way before because they weren't, they weren't dying in that way. Like their transition wasn't imminent, you know? And I, I love this because it does mean we have to come back to each other. It's like, we have to, and we have to, and I don't just mean people. It's like, we have to come back to every being on this planet um, and witness each other and ask what is needed. Um, and figure out where there are resources. And uh, it, to me, it also feels like it's, a, it's about love and care too. Like, I think witnessing somebody transition can be a, I'm thinking about my grandmother. Um, it felt like an honor to be with her and that she allowed me to be with her as she was transitioning. Like, and I was the person in the room for a while with her, right? But it felt so intimate in that moment. And I felt like I'm supposed to be here right now with you and you're letting me watch witness this and, so and care for you. Like that is what we need to do for each other. Mm. Mm. It makes me also think, I feel like there's an analogy there around how we need to be with each other just in general, like not just in moments of like death um, or, you know, um, or detriment, but just like in moments of like, how do we how do we navigate the reality of the world right now? How do we navigate the reality of injustice? And and I just want to say like I've learned so much from you, and just from our relationship right around um, the role of relationship and intimacy in understanding um, both how um, how we're uniquely impacted, right? Given our lived experiences and also like what we, what we've, what we're collectively losing, mm -hmm. um, what's collectively at stake for us. And it makes me, it makes me curious also about how that plays into grief. Cause I'm just thinking about, you know, um, you know, we need to grieve the collective wounds of our past. We need to also grieve the like anticipatory wounds of our future. And our grief looks different 
right, based on our location, right? Survivors of colonization and slavery and other oppressions have to grieve for their people and their lands and the rituals and the culture, right, that was taken and, and exploited. And those of us in more dominant positions who've inherited the colonizer virus or, or the privileges of white supremacy also have to mourn um, and, and grieve what we've traded in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. To be to be it to maintain our positionality or to be members of the delusion of white supremacy. And so I'm curious what it looks like to navigate grief across lines of difference mm-hmm. when when it's both different. Right. And shared at the same time. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, the work we do and, and some of the other work I've done. Um, with BIPOC folks in affinity spaces and appreciate you uplifting. We don't grieve in the same way. Um, and, and many of the practices in finding refuge are for people to figure out how they want to grieve and what is needed for healing. There's not a prescription though. And I've witnessed so many times in, in our work and in, in, um, racial equity training, dismantling racism training, the moment when we go through the history of the race construct and my awareness that BIPOC folks will, will hear that history and feel it in a different way than white-bodied folks because of how we're positioned and the trauma that is being like um, stirred up and relived in that moment for I think everyone but but more intensely for BIPOC folks and the experience of continuing to, to move through a white supremacy culture um, that uh, wants to annihilate us as BIPOC people and and white-bodied folks, to your point, have been, they can benefit from that system as they learn about the history that they're implicated in. That's really different positioning. And those moments are always really challenging because um, they're challenging to to be in space together and figure out how are we going to hold this tension where some folks are reliving their trauma and some folks are learning about it even though I think we've all experienced trauma because of white supremacy and systems of oppression. And so sometimes I feel like what is needed is acknowledging this, right? We're moving with different experiences. What we need um, in response to what we've lost is different. And I really think about affinity spaces as well as a way to go have space to grieve and then come back together. so that we can we can attend to the way we're holding the grief differently Um, and the point is solidarity in in my experience and and liberation so when we can come back together coming back together like it's i feel like we've all experienced suffering because of white supremacy and it's skillful to understand how our experience is different than others like we need to to understand that as we um, navigate relationships across difference. So that's a that's a little bit about how we how we navigate it. And that also means not projecting our experience on other people. You know, like if I've had some I lost someone and someone else says, yes, when I lost my whatever and this is what I did, it can be helpful in part because it's a way of connection. And then there are times where it feels like this is not anything like your experience or the Mm -hmm. anticipatory grief that I move with related to white supremacy and waiting for the next brown or black person to be murdered. White people are not holding that in their bodies in the same way. That's right. They may have an awareness it will happen, but they're not waiting for it to happen. Um, And not, 
not holding on to the fact that it could be them because they're benefiting from the system. So I feel like awareness is and practice are really important when we are um, holding grief and loss across lines of difference. Yeah. And you're making me think too about how like our ability to articulate that awareness when we're in relationship actually allows us in some ways to grieve together. Like, I just think that about like, you know, in the context of our work, you know, often I hear from white people like um, that they're afraid to, uh, to show white tears. And, and I'm also like, if the like historical and continued killing of black people, you know, in a culture of white supremacy doesn't break your heart, like something's fucking wrong with you. (laughs) Right. So like, how do we, to your point, like articulate, like not just hold it, but articulate it to each other in like deep relationship in a Mm -hmm. way that allows us to see that, like, we understand the, the nuance and we also understand like the heartbreak. Yeah, I think it's challenging because there have been times when when um, I've witnessed BIPOC people in spaces who don't want to see the white tears. And, and I agree with you that like our hearts are broken and we need to have space to process it. It's just how and where and when, mm-hmm. not that it yeah. needs to be calculated, but honoring like yeah. you're right. Yes, white people should be doing work to disrupt this and also noticing how their hearts are broken as well because of these systems and then thinking about what do we want to what do we want to do in response to that i want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on patreon for making it possible for us to do this work especially in a moment when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities in our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability. By joining our community for as little as $2 per month, you help us create content and resources that matter to the moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen. Know it when you see it. Know it when you see it. Um, one of the things I love about your book is that it um, it provides, um, I think for people who are like, I feel grief and I don't know what to do with it. Like it provides rituals and and practices for people to lean into. And when I think about, you know, the consequences of colonization in that so many of us have lost ancient rituals of grief, right? That were expressed in like unrestrained ways that were communally shared. You know, my own um, 
you know, Celtic ancestors had like a ritual of keening that was like wiped out, which was like this is very vocal, cathartic, shared art form of of grieving of like and it was sort of like what you were naming at the beginning of a of our conversation about like people really like creating space for like the full expression of grief um and we've really like we've erased a lot of those rituals. We've lost a lot of those rituals or they've been, you know, they've been stolen, right. Or eradicated, Mm -hmm. um, depending on your ancestral medicine. And so I'm curious, like, what have you discovered is like the role of ritual, the role of practice in reclaiming some of that time and Mm -hmm. space to, to, to grieve properly, to ride the waves. Yeah. I, um, often talk about the awareness that my ancestors had rituals and and did the practice them together so it wasn't like me in my house in front of my altar it was me in the village in a circle with people with fire or water or both engaging the elements and song and movement and wailing um, and art right that was that was happening and so I know that's in my lineage so I remember that's in my body, which allows me to to be with this wisdom that we actually were never meant to grieve in, in isolation. Like that is not what we were designed to do. And I think a lot of, in many other places in the world, um, people do still have some access to their rituals and practices. And so part of me is thinking about the U.S. and, and just how... Um, We've been cut off and and severed from our our rituals, and there is this um, tendency to want things to be neat and clean, right, and contained. Which means, if I want to wail in the street because the world is doing what it's doing, that people would respond to me in this way and wonder what was wrong with me. Like I would be perceived as having a mental health issue, when in fact I would just be grieving. Um, with myself or other people, which is an appropriate response to what's going on, right? I would be expressing this in this way. And so I think part of what we need to do is, and this was true when I was on the floor after George Zimmerman was acquitted, I couldn't contain that. There was no containing the emotion and trauma that was moving through me. There was no like, you're going to zip this up. Because in fact, I was in the bed the next day that I didn't go to work. Like there was nothing that would have allowed me to be like, let me wrap this up in a box and keep moving. I had to to continue to work. So I did a little bit of that, but it took some time. And then there was a point when that couldn't happen. And spiritual practice is what kept reminding me, like, you can't avoid this. And even if other people are avoiding this, like you actually have to go into it. Um, And so I would invite people to even if they don't know their ancestry, their lineage, their roots, to remember that, I mean, we all come from people that practice rituals in community. To, to the, and then we embody that. And so from that place, what might it look like to um, be in circle with others and acknowledge, I'm thinking about what we were talking about earlier, what we just went through. Like that's a ritual, right? That's a practice. Um, Honoring that we're still here is a practice. Honoring who we lost is a practice, right? But gathering together in this way, just being with one another, if I think about the isolation, the physical, social isolation, that could be a ritual now and a practice, right? A coming back together, as we talked about. 
And so um, I feel like, you know, there's a combination of, of meditations and this and, and rituals and practices. So there, there's, a, you know, varied practices for people to think of and journaling prompts to think about um, what might support them as they're grieving and to sort of broaden um, our understanding of spiritual practice and how it can respond to, to grief and loss. Um, and I would say trust that given that we've all come from people that had rituals, right? Trust that's in there somewhere and start to ask about it. Like start to ask for information about what elements you might pull in and engage um, or which places you might need to go to be with people. Or this is about intuition and listening as well. So that's what we'd say. I feel like collective ritual and practice is a perfect segue to the hive. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about bees because I know that when you were writing this book, you, um, you were tending to bees. Mm-hmm. And you were learning about the process of keeping bees and about the the um, the the work of of the the hive and the co- the collective the the collectivity right of the hive, and I want to read a, a quote um, that you have um, uh, from a book that you sent me while you were writing this book along with honey from your yeah. hive. <laughs> um, by Jacqueline Freeman, who wrote Song of Increase, Listening to the Wisdom of Honeybees for a Kinder Beekeeping in a Better World. A hive is wholeness. One bee experiences all that every bee experiences. There is no separation. Whereas you have separation, we are born into a world beyond the borders of singularity. Our first thought is always the hive, to bear increase in the world as we sing the world into aliveness. What did you learn about grief and collective care as you were witnessing and tending to the hive? Yeah. Um, So I love that you asked about bees because I love to bring them into the conversation in this space. Um, And right now I have three hives out in my yard that are very, very busy and we just harvested honey on, on Monday. So I'll send some more your, your way soon. Yes. Yes, it's very, it's such good honey and sweetness. And I I learned a lot because I did not know what I was doing. Um, I got bees, I had not taken a class, but I know the bees came to me on purpose. Um, And I, um, my relationship with them at first was not, I wasn't careful because I didn't know what they needed and I didn't ask. I knew they were magical, but I didn't know how to have a relationship with them. Um, and so I learned a lot about um, building a relationship with um, other beings and what's required and the care and the time, right, and the patience. And I learned a lot from watching them um, in community with one another because each bee has a role. And as Jacqueline um, wrote in that beautiful book, um, the, the beehive is the super organism. So it's not an individual bee. It's, they are the hive. Like each bee represents the hive and everything is for the hive, which I love when I think about how we create conditions for people to thrive and think about the collective and social justice. And they are busy all of the time doing their role all of the time, right? If you, if you stand next to my biggest hive sting, you can, I mean, they're so loud and vibrant and um, all over the place and bringing in pollen and pre- guarding the guards are out like protecting the hive um, to make sure the bees that come back are, are their bees right and not drifters from other hives so they're they're always working for the hive as well and that really made me think about what does it mean to 
to do everything for the hive. Like, what does it mean to remember we are part of a collective? We are part of a hive. I also, my first winter of having these lost a hive, which was devastating, I was so um, heartbroken um, because I don't know what happened and also witnessing a hive. It's like thinking about COVID over the last year, I've thought about this beehive a lot because I saw all these bees that weren't alive on the bottom board and it was so overwhelming. And, and that is what I've felt in response to COVID and the amount of people that have transitioned, like more death than I've ever experienced. That felt in some ways similar to watching this hive that was lifeless, that had been vibrant at one point. So um, I'm, I'm thinking about that, like that's not, um, what can we do to maintain the hive and continue to build that vibrancy is what I would, what I would say. Um, and I've, I learned a lot about life and death because not only from losing a hive, but bees do not live for very long and they work and work, they really work themselves to death, like because they work so hard, um, and they have this job and they're communicating all the time about what it is. And, um, they don't seem to, to hold on to, even though they've lost a bee and the whole hive experiences that they continue to, to like work and, and work to sustain the hive because they know like life is temporary. I feel like they have this wisdom. They also are working between realms, the spirit realm and this realm too. Um, and as Jacqueline said, there's, there's no separation between an individual being the hive. And for them, there isn't a separation between this realm and the spirit realm as well. And so the bees are everything. I feel like we have our save, save the bees, um, shirts on right now. Um, we'll have to take a picture of that. I know. And I, I learned when I lost that hive the next spring, my biggest hive sting, they swarmed. So there was also life and death in that way, like death. And then the hive was so big sting that they had to swarm to split, which is a smart thing for them to do to manage resources. And so you, we can have this like death and um, like booming hive, right? Happening at the same time. And I think that's so much of the human experience too, when we're responding to the trauma of the world and we're also like um, growing and building and reimagining and connecting with hope um, that feels, feels resonant as well. So, so much about the bees and the hive. And um, I just invite people to, to watch um, if you can, honeybees, and really a lot of bee pollinators to watch them and how they work and how they move because we can learn a lot from, from them. Um, the other thing I think of when you say swarm is, is organizing is how right. they're like constantly mobilizing and orienting around collective care, which yeah. is really the thing we keep talking about, right? Um, like what does it look like, um, and I feel like it's connected to grief too, right? Like, mm -hmm. like how do we grieve for the collective, right? How do we grieve for the care that everyone deserves, right? How do we grieve into the, into a future, right? Um, that's yeah. better than than the one that we're coming from. Um, how did that, you? Oh, I just wanted that made me think of there's a um um. I think it's true, but it's like folklore about telling the bees when someone dies so they can mourn with you, which what you just said made me think about that. There's this whole history of um, people needing to go to, out to the hive to say, we've lost 
so-and-so, right? So the bees can warm with you. And if people didn't do this, so the thought was that something would happen that would be negative, right? Or, or something bad would happen. I'll send you an article about it. It's really interesting. And this practice happened in more than one, one place. Like people learn this across the globe. Like we need to go tell the bees so they can be in this with us. So there's something they understand about Whoa. grief and they have a desire to mourn with us and their beehives are dying, right? Um, and so it's making me think of, of how can we be with them and mourn with them? How can they mourn with us? And I think this is true of all beings, but I know there's a specific practice with the bees. about. Oh my so gosh. I love that. That's your next book. Um, <laughs> that's the next book, um, How We Grieve with the Bees. Um, you know, I heard, I, I don't, I'm not going to say this quote correctly, but I feel like this is... Um, this is the thing I want to believe about grief, Michelle. Um, and it was something like um, the depth of your grief um, is the depth of your joy, right? Like the, the space that we create through grief with, within the self and the collective um, is, 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 the, is, our, is also like analogous to our capacity to like feel joy. Um, and to feel fulfillment, right? And to mm -hmm. feel possibility. Um, and yet I think often when we think about grief, we, we shun joy, right? Joy is not appropriate right here. You know, the world is falling apart and people are dying. And, and I just find that like often those things are in isolation. What is it, what do you think it looks like to bring those things together? Like how do we embrace grief in the way that we need to heal, but also like, and simultaneously, like allow for the joy that can arise for this from the space that we make. Yeah, I love this question because part of, you know, our grief process isn't um, stagnant, and so we are moving through something, and we are releasing something. At least this is my experience of it, and witnessing groups of people, they, there's a, a release, which means there's space, right? And and if we hold on to it, there's no space. But if we move through it, acknowledge it and move through it, there's more space for us to um, feel this joy, right? And create joy for ourselves and connect with hope. And I think people have a misconception about that. And, and part of that's our conditioning around grief and just not wanting to feel that. But like people, as I said earlier, feel like grief is going to consume me um, and never feel like joy is going to consume me, right? Like people never orient in, in that way. They're not thinking there's that amount of space or capacity to feel joy if I just acknowledge this and release and move through it. And at the same time to feel joy um, and grief and um, to have humor, right? I'm thinking about my dad's um, funeral and my mother and I like which was so people can read about in the book, but we were like making faces at each other because it was ridiculous. I'll just tell you this memorial service was, was not what I would have planned and it was ridiculous and people can learn about my dad in the book. Um, and I was like, we are like at this memorial laughing. Like we are totally laughing because we know this is false. What's being shared right now? Like, what are we doing? And there are several moments I have like that when, when we're like in a shit storm and all of a sudden there's some, and I think it's a trauma release too. There's some like somebody does something and everyone's laughing and feeling joyful and opening their heart. So I think many people have had these experiences, which means we can grieve and feel joy at the same time.
right? We can be moving through through something, um, a ritual around death, and still feel feel joyful. And I also know grief is connected with love. And and this there's a quote in the book Martin Prechtel about grief and praise and grief and love, and that you know our um, the amount that we are grieving for something, someone, the planet is. Um, um, comparable to our um, ability to love, right? It's like we can love that much. And it's it's actually an expression of love to grieve is how he writes about it. Um, and so I think it is a, it, people I think need to adjust, like, as I said, reorient um, because we're in a culture that wants us to be binary. Like I'm grieving, I'm not doing anything, else, right? Like it's this process versus like, I'm alive. I'm fully alive, as Jacqueline Freeman talks about. And that means I'm going to feel joy and grief and 15 other things and maybe at the same time. And that's what it means to be fully alive on this planet and be connected to the heart and be present. It makes me also feel like how um, grief is an emptying out and it's like a stripping, right? It's like a stripping bear of all of the armor um, so that we can like feel more deeply and how um, that's sort of akin to like what we need to do in like culture and in systems. Right. Like we just need to like tear that shit all the way to the ground and make space to your point yeah. for the more beautiful and uncertain thing that like is to come. Um, and, and, and also like what's, you know, your, what I feel like I'm going to take away from this conversation is, is really like a reckoning with um, the ways in which I defend, mm -hmm. right. And protect my heart, um, and, and, you know, and hold my grief, um, and how that, um, how that prevents me from making space yeah, for the joy and for the well-being and the flourishing and the connection and the relationship and the growth and the, and the possibility, right. That, that is who we are becoming. And so I, I love this idea of like, of grief as, as possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it creates possibility. Yeah. Moving through it together creates possibility. I, I want to just say like, it, this is what you're, what we're ending with is one of the things I really appreciate about this book. Cause I think to your point, and we started this conversation in this way, like people avoid grief at all costs. <laughs> people are afraid to grieve. And I actually feel like, um, this book, like, transformed my relationship with grief. Like I closed this book, Michelle, not hysterically crying and in a puddle on the ground. Like I closed this book feeling centered mm -hmm. and feeling whole. Like grief is not only necessary, it's possible. And like, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, you had that experience and said that um, because that's what I want. You know, that's why there are tools and practices there. That's why I share my own personal stories and how I, my own process of grieving and move through it, right? Um, I'm an example of how you're not going to be consumed by grief and trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have this capacity. So that is where I want people to be is to feel centered, mm -hmm. to feel like they've moved through something, to feel like they're whole and we're whole, to work towards our wholeness. Um, that is that is what I dream of. That's my hope for this book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That is the gift that you give all of us. And I'm just thinking about how, like, we've just spoken about grief for one hour and I'm smiling. Yeah. 
like I feel joyful um, being in this inquiry and this practice with you. So thank you for for giving this gift for us. Thank you also for um, for living it. I know that you don't just write. I know that you like fully live into every word um, and every action that you take, and um, and that is like the sign of such a great teacher. Thank you, and thank you for being on the journey with me. You've witnessed me through many of the stories that are in the book, and. Um, for being comrades and friends and I love you thank you I love you too thank you while this podcast is coming to an end Our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to make space for collective grief. We grieve and heal in community. You can download a free collective grief circle guide at bit.ly slash finding refuge circle. And be sure to buy Michelle's book at findingrefuge.com and follow her on Instagram at skill in action. Full links and resources in the show notes. Shout out to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. To our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter, and to the amazing team at Citizen Well that is bringing our mission to life. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love by telling your friends to check us out.